0: for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists. Ruby's live remote receptionists and proprietary technology are your solution to delivering excellent customer service experiences by answering live calls in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, or making outbound calls for you. Most importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. To learn more, visit callruby.com or better yet, call us at 855-255-RUBY. My guest today is Rob Everts. Rob is the president and co-CEO of Equal Exchange, one of the largest worker cooperatives in the country. A worker cooperative is not owned by outside shareholders or a small group of founders, but by all employees in equal portions. After becoming active in the United Farm Workers movement in high school, Rob joined the UFA full time before venturing into the business world and going from activist to entrepreneur. Welcome, Rob.
1: Thank you, nice to be here.
0: Well, it's so great to have you on. There's just so much to dig into with your story. But let's set some context for our listeners about Equal Exchange. What does the company do? Who do you serve? Where are you based? Things like that.
1: Yeah. Equal Exchange was started about 32 years ago. Um, I've just been here about 22 years, <laughs> but by three three uh, young men who had been very involved in the food co-op world in New England, um, but even working in that Uh, arena, they knew very, very little about where products from overseas were coming from and how they were sourced and the conditions, whether it was tea or bananas or coffee or cacao, um, didn't know, didn't know. Um, and so they determined to do something about that. And, um, they, they left the food co-op world and jumped off the proverbial cliff and, um, and decided to uh, to try to learn as much as they could about that sourcing, and then, if possible, um, make products available to consumers. And in that process, demystify where stuff comes from. And so, our mission statement speaks to building, you know, more understanding and relationships between small-scale farmers and consumers in this country, and and also engaging consumers. As a, a key element to what we do, I might say more about that in a minute. As we're looking at a new initiative with citizen consumers, as we're engaging people more in their holistic beings. But the point was to um, demystify for people here where stuff comes from and help build markets for for farmers that they knew uh, before they even started researching were really marginalized and isolated uh, from the international trade system that was more dominated by big players who had access to. Banks and credits and expertise and governments and this and that kind of thing. So, really, in a sentence, our goal is to build viable and sustainable supply chains that work for organized groups of small farmers to enable them to um, stay on the land uh, and, and build market share in the in the so-called global north.
0: Now, is that really the definition of what fair trade means? Supporting those smaller farmers in those communities.
1: That's our definition. We really and and I'll I'll say what I mean by that in a second But for for us, it really is about building power and market share for these groups who have taken the first step themselves to organize in their rural communities around the world Um, But really it's 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 in the rural areas in most places around the country, it's oligarchs, it's large landowners who who run the show and, and have the kind of access and advantages that I mentioned a second ago. Uh, and there, and it manifests itself in political advantages as well. And so we're trying to help people, um, you know, build economically viable lives um, and build market share that way. That's what we mean by fair trade. I think perhaps there's more of a prevailing, uh, possibly common understanding of that. It's about more focused on poverty alleviation, which obviously, given who we're talking about, is critical. Uh, but it's but it's also, I think I think maybe our interpretation of the original kind of mandate um, is is deeper. And, and we were the original ones who started this process in in the food area um, in the United States in 1986. And point of fact, the fair trade uh, system in coffee. Uh, which later expanded other products, was begun by a, a, a Mexican peasant in Oaxaca and a Dutch priest who was there long-term with them. Um, and I think I'll skip the whole long story there, but it was really about getting market share for small-scale farmers and prices that would enable them to stay on the land.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned you're the original three partners of the business now 32 years ago were in the food co-op Area. Can you define what that means?
1: Yeah, they worked for uh, New England food co ops. They worked in the, um, there's about, let's say, 400 consumer owned uh, food co ops in communities around the country. And where they all worked was in the New England uh, distributor. It was a cooperative distributor um, that uh, serviced the food co ops in New England so one of them dealt mostly in produce another mostly in grains and things like that uh, so that's that's how they got their start in on the food side so even when you think about fair trade right we, we could be and there's a lot of injustice right we import there's the whole race to the bottom here is where people you know large players in this country who import anything are generally looking to find the lowest cost you know anything widget you know, at, at, the, at, the, at the price and get the cheapest and turn around and mark up as high as the market will bear. And um, given that these guys were foodies um, and that we we're in the international sector, it, we're not doing widgets. We're not doing technology. We're, not, we're doing food products. So mm-hmm. that's, that's how niche really was established for equal
0: exchange. So now if you look at equal exchange um, in terms of size and scope, talk about how many employees you have, maybe top line revenues.
1: Yeah. So we have about 140 uh, full-time equivalents, and most of them are, in fact, full-time. Of those, maybe 125 or so are members of the co-op, us as a worker co-op. We call ourselves worker owners. Um, That would mean that the 15 who aren't, uh, haven't completed their first year. To become a full-fledged worker owner of this co-op, you need to have completed your first year at Equal Exchange and then passed a review and then be voted in by the members. So that's the number of uh, people uh, here. And then uh, sales uh, were about 60, 61 million. Last year, if you include our fresh fruit, uh, banana and avocado subsidiary that we own 90% of, uh, the number goes to 70 million.
0: Well, wow, that's quite a, uh, quite a company there um, that you became involved in. I want to kind of take you back now, because uh, I, I, I'm going to jump back in a little bit into the cooperative and your governance structure and the really unique and special culture that you guys have built. But uh, uh, you didn't start out, obviously, in that business. L- let me take you back to um, those early years. Uh, I know you became uh, kind of an activist in high school. And what were the influences you had from your parents or early jobs that got uh, your passion going in those early years?
1: Yeah, if you grew up in the Bay Area in the 70s, like I did, um, even like late 60s and early to mid 70s, it was pretty hard to avoid you know, exposure—unless you really tried, I suppose—to avoid exposure to all sorts of political uh, movements and unrest, from the Black Panthers to the women's movement to the environmental movement to the United Farm move- movement. And which is based in California, and it was this—that latter one, the UFW, and the Chavez and the Lotus Huerta movement—that uh, uh, where I got the bug, and I got the bug in high school, and they were boycotting uh, a liquor store in my town uh, because they carried Gallo wine, and Gallo was had had tried to break the union uh, after a three-year contract, and so, and so I. Um, uh, I walked home past this picket line every day, and I actually felt I was too shy and and uh, would not be able to adequately represent what they were doing. So I I didn't join, didn't join, didn't join, and finally one rainy day, my older brother went down and said, you want to go? And I just kind of figured, if, if he can, I can. So I went down, and pretty quickly, the organizer, this, this uh, phenomenal young woman named Nancy Elliott, saw that she had... Kind of a live wire, um, and she took me under her wing, almost literally. And you know, well, let me show you how you, how we do it here, because because it was, I remember it was a high bar. It wasn't just asking people to boycott the Gallo wine; it was asking people to get back in their cars and turn around and not shop at the store at all. I could never do that. You know? mm-hmm. So anyway, she she uh, she was my first trainer, and um, and it kind of stuck. So I I I was on the college track, went to a year. Uh, up in Oregon, and it was the wrong place at the wrong time for me. So I, after one year left, joined the United Farm Workers uh, full-time and ended up staying with them for um, seven years. Wow.
0: Uh, Did you, uh, was it just your direct exposure to United Farm Workers and crossing that picket line? And uh, were your parents active in other causes? Uh, where, where, Where else do you think that came from?
1: You know, um, my parents were from New England. And so they, like many others, moved West many, many, many years ago. Uh, My dad was a Democrat. His father was a DFL uh, leader in um, Minnesota—grandfather in Minnesota. Uh, His parents were very active politically, like in the sacco vanzetti Defense Committee back here in Boston. My mother was kind of more the liberal New England Republican. Moved to California. Ne- neither were super active. I, I feel that uh, they were all supportive, and so I had kind of the wind at my back. But I don't feel like I got, I got the activism from uh, them. I think I got it by taking that first step uh, after reluctance, and then realizing that um, I could be effective at it, and believing passionately in the cause, and um, and then I and, and then I, and I stuck with it. <laughs>
0: Well, you said that you were uh, shy and it took you a while to kind of come around. Um, Now you're the president and co-CEO of a large company. So at some point, these leadership skills started to come out. Uh, Where did that start to expose itself?
1: I think that was in the United Farm Workers. There was a legendary organizer uh, that most people have never heard of. He had originally worked with Saul Alinsky, but his name was Fred Ross, and he was the person who, quote-unquote, discovered Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and trained many of the—and together they built up the— the the base of the United Farm Workers, and then when it, then when in years later they had to resort to these massive nationwide consumer boycotts, it was Fred, who who trained large numbers of us, and so I went through formal house meeting trainings, uh, and meaning where you would meet one on one with someone, ask them to invite friends over, get them over. And do what you could to uh, get them to become active and, and 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 come out on you know weekends to picket stores or leaflet and to donate money and things like that. And there was an element of a training and just being forced out of my comfort zone, um, that that I think uh, contributed to um, you know learning some leadership skills uh, and engaging others to also nudge them out of their comfort zones and and that that's the part that's actually very rewarding as an organizer when you see people um, doing stuff they were quite quite positive they would never have seen themselves doing and leading in their own way uh, and then um, after seven years I and you know others had gone perhaps different ways for a for a period of time but we came back Many of us veterans of the UFW came back together because we had all come in contact with victims of U.S. policy in Central America in the 80s, death squads that U.S. government funded in El Salvador and Guatemala and things like that. and So we formed a national organization with kind of a generic name but highly effective called Neighbor to Neighbor. That First, uh, did a swing congressional district strategy to shut off aid to the conscience in Nicaragua, and later uh, took on uh, the government of El Salvador with a death squad since the U.S. Congress was unwilling to cut off aid. And our final tactic there is what ultimately led me into the orbit of equal exchange, and that was Congress was not close to a majority of cutting off aid there, and so. We looked around the room one day at a national meeting, all of us veterans of the United Farm Workers years, and realized we had about 100 years of consumer boycott experience sitting in the room, (laughs) basically said, what the hell? The legislative pressure campaign isn't working. Let's go after their leading product export from El Salvador, coffee. The governing party was the arena party of the coffee-growing oligarchy of the elite who had funded death squads, and so we went after—launched a boycott of the coffee. We targeted Folgers as the primary brand. It was extremely effective at multiple levels. I was approached—because I was in Boston at the time, you know, where Equal Exchange is based—and I was approached at the the fever pitch height of this boycott by Equal Exchange um, saying, you know, asking, hey, while you're boycotting the, the bad guys, do you have an interest in going into El Salvador, try to identify amongst the cooperative sector, you know, the good guys, uh, and help us import from there, because we don't buy from there yet. And my response then was, this is it's a great idea, but I can't imagine doing it at the same time. This is so hard. It requires every ounce of energy and sweat that we can put into this thing. If we, by happenstance, are fortunate enough to help contribute an end to this to these atrocities and an end to what had become a civil war in El Salvador, then let's talk. Get to 1992, a peace accord was signed, um, and then Equal Exchange and neighbor-to-neighbor neighbor and Oxfam America, we collaborated immediately to go into post-war El Salvador and in fact begin identifying amongst uh, the survivors, I'll say, um, in the cooperative sector in agriculture in coffee, uh, people that Equal Exchange could uh, could buy from. and so for the last 25 years we've had in fact this product cafe salvador as a as a strong product at equal exchange ever ever since
0: now what are the other products and services that equal exchange offers and where do you sell
1: Um, coffee is still our primary product it's about seventy percent of um, what we sell in terms of sales dollars it's about seven million pounds of coffee um, per year Um, the second and then i'll talk about where we sell the second product um, is chocolate and cocoa, as in cocoa powders and, and chocolate, come from similar growing areas. Um, and then we are also doing tea from small-scale farmers, really working uh, uphill in that, against the tea plantation uh, model. Um, we do cashews from southern India and El Salvador. We're doing now bananas uh, from South America, avocados from Mexico. Olive oil from Palestine, a couple of thing, other things like that, and our main customers, I would say, are food co-ops uh, around the country. I mentioned, alluded to them a few minutes ago. There's hundreds of those, and those have been, you know, a loyal base for Equal Exchange. We also sell to um, hundreds of other independent natural food stores. We'll, we sell stuff in, uh, like, the chocolate and uh, Whole Foods. You'll find our chocolate in, in, in Target, Kroger, Kroger stores, some coffee in some of those places as well, some family-owned chains around, around the country, and we also sell to about 6,000 uh, faith congregations, mm-hmm. mostly Protestant churches, but not all, uh, who see this very consistent with their faith, and so we sell in largely you know, smaller quantities, but to thousands of uh, churches around the country as well.
0: That's really neat. You know, uh, what occurs to me is that you've made a couple really big transitions in your life, and one of them was uh, deciding after a year of college that that wasn't for you. And then uh, this uh, transition from being uh, kind of uh, on the line boycotting and um, uh, on the legislative side and ending up going to the business side. And so what, kind, what gave you the courage uh, to make those transitions?
1: That's a great question, especially the the, the latter one. I mean, the, the first one was really of, of dropping out of college was it, the, the passion was just so strong. I, I just I got the bug, it, that's that's just where I felt I needed to be, and college at that time was getting in the way. Um, and so I knew I had parents that wouldn't you know chop my head off or disown me and that kind of thing if I did it. Uh, so I didn't have that battle to fight although I think they were kind of expecting it to last a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the other transition from being an activist um, and really fighting corporate business to um, come into equal exchange as an, as an alternative type of business and ultimately then be accountable um, was an interesting one because I felt um, that... This was one business, just knowing the people and knowing what they set out to do, and actually asking you know, where do the profits go and things like that, and who's wh- where are the profits accountable to? Um, this felt like, you know it was an opportunity to actually uh, gravitate f- from working for social and economic justice on the outside to to building to building that kind of justice within the within the market. And so whereas we pay, farmers um, far above you know, a New York commodity price, you know, whatever coffee or cacao, for example, is traded at, we still need to operate here in, in the context of the U.S. market, because even though our mission, you could say, is a, is a nonprofit mission, at the end of the day, we are structured as a for-profit business, so there's no grants coming our way to fund the business it has to survive on the power of the of the ideas as manifested by revenue in gross margin dollars
0: well there had to have been also a lot of learnings along the way and you coming in with those three original partners and eventually now, for many years, being in this uh, president and co CEO role, uh, how did that develop? Where you uh, needed to not only learn the business but earn the trust of others in the organization to ultimately lead it like you are today.
1: Um, that that was a really interesting process. There was a there was a transition going on in the leadership here. One of the three founders had, in fact. Um, already left uh, to start, you know, as a real entrepreneur, start another uh, organization supporting local farmers in New England. It's called Red Tomato. Um, and then the other original uh, founder was transitioning more or less at that time, maybe maybe two years into my tenure here, um, out uh, as well. He's Jonathan. He's also gone on to do really interesting work. Um, but so it was it was a moment of transition, and then the the remaining uh, founder, uh, Rink Dickinson, who is uh, still here and currently the co-director with me, um, we established a pretty tight and honest and transparent and mutually respectful relationship pretty quickly, and. Um, In the course of these transitions, uh, when I think the expectation of everyone in the organization, which was all of maybe 15 employees at the time or 20, um, the expectation was that he would solely become the the director. Uh, He actually didn't want it. Um, And so we talked a lot and um, we got to a point where we we said, well, let's propose to our board um, a co-director. Co co CEO, co co executive director, arrangement, um, and see if they bite. <laughs> and um, and it was a, it was a really fascinating process. I know it, it put that our board out of their comfort zone. Like, where is this coming from? And and how am I supposed to deal? Is this kinda of like a joint checking account? And sign off on everything you know. So we, we tried to <laughs> demystify um, where that would be and that was like uh, nineteen ninety nine, so it's been, it's been, um, and they haven't thrown us out yet. You know, we're, we're growing and it's, uh, it's been working. So <laughs> here we are.
0: Let's take a quick break. Support for today's episode comes from Benedictine University's Center for Values Driven Leadership, where they offer a PhD program for senior executives who want to build strong, positive cultures that deliver exceptional performances. The unique curriculum combines academic rigor with insights you can put to work on Monday morning. Through the three-year program, you become an expert in the aspect of leadership you're most passionate about so you can have a transformative impact in your business and on society. Find out how you can lead your company while you earn your Ph.D. Visit cbdl.ben.edu for more information or Google Ph.D. Values Leadership. That's PhD Values Leadership. And now back to the podcast. Well, speaking of, 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 of a board and just the overall governance, uh, I'm really interested in this co-op format, which is not an ESOP. Uh, it's uh, where, you know, every employee has equal shares, etc. So walk through how that works from a practical standpoint in including, you know, what do you do with the profits and and what does it look like sort of long term for you and others in the company?
1: Yeah. Uh, So so it's at the governance and capital level, I would say, where we are most different from most businesses in the United States. And I can circle back that at the day to day management level, kind of day in and day out, I, I think we look. Much more conventional. You know, we happen to have co-directors, uh, but then you can have department heads ahead of you know sales, finance, you know production, coffee roasting area, you know things like that, and supervisors and things like that. But at the uh, at the highest level of ownership and governance, um, uh, after you've been here a year, you are eligible to be voted in. Uh, Two thirds of the current members need to vote you in. It generally. Uh, is uneventful and is a yes because we screen so so much for who we bring in, um, and so once you uh, are a member, you've got the same exact uh, vote and rights and stake in the company as uh, I do, and or anyone else. Um, and you you buy one share of voting stock, common stock, class A for us. It's pegged to inflation. I think. Right now, it's around thirty-five, thirty-six hundred dollars for one share, um, and then if there are profits to be had at the end of the year, which there have been for like twenty-one of the last twenty-two years, um, um, you have an equal uh, uh, shot at that. It's divided by FTE. What we literally do with the profits is sixty um, percent are you know after paying uh, taxes and dividends to outside shareholders. Which I'll describe in a second, too, because that's a fascinating aspect of the model. Um, then, 60% of remaining profits are um, turned back into re- retained earnings um, to help grow the company and be capital base. 40% are uh, are distributed to to members, to worker owners. Um, more often than not, the company and the board makes this vote has retained. 20% for capital and distributed in cash, 20%. Um, but you, each of us has what we call an internal capital account. So even the part that might be retained, that's got our name on it. And if the day comes when we leave the organization, we take that uh, with us. So uh, the worker owners vote on the highest level decisions, like changing the bylaws, um, we elect. The board of directors. The board of directors consists of six of us, six worker owners, and I say us meaning worker owners. Neither Rick or I happens to be on the board, but we could run for it. Um, and three outsiders. We've always valued the role of outsiders, uh, to give perspective, advice, expertise, and make sure we don't get too far down the path of navel gazing as a, as a worker co op, and so, um. We retain worker control by having six out of nine seats reserved for workers. Um, One could imagine it could be a recipe for disaster, like, Mm -hmm. oh my god, it's like, uh, you know, you, Rob, supervise so-and-so day in and day out, but they're on the board, and if the board has a right to hire and fire the executive. How does how can that possibly be functional? <laughs> and and we've had a couple of crises, you know, govern, governance crises, you know, over the twenty years. But but um, at the end of the day, the model has stood the test of time, and um, and it's worked. And I think it's a large part of what keeps people here. Um, the capital role is really interesting because we have about six hundred uh, outside investors who have put in sixteen million dollars in what is uh, preferred stock, um, class B here, um, they get a, a targeted non-cumulative 5% return. They have no guaranteed seat on the board. They do not have a vote of any kind. Um, and we love them dearly, right? They invest in the mission, right? If the first mm-hmm. thing the prospective investor wants to talk about is the return, they're probably talking, you know, having the wrong conversation. Um, we'll obviously we'll share all the nuts and bolts of that, but we want people to really engage in what we're doing. And so there's a there's a just a fabulous role for hundreds of investors who who have I'd say a seat at the proverbial table next to next to worker owners, next to farmers, next to our customers, next to the environment. You know, like not the seat.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like you know, like a social investing. I mean, you're again, you're investing in the mission and uh, know where and how your money's being used, and that is enough for all of those investors. That's a really uh, great, great model. If if I'm a frontline worker, you know, roasting coffee, uh, you know, what does it mean to me to be part of the co-op, and how is it going to change my uh I, I guess at the end of the year, if we do well, we make profit. I'm going to get some portion of that that's going to go into an account that uh, at, at some point, if and when I leave, I can cash in. Is that the way it works?
1: Yeah, as well as a portion getting in cash uh, at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so what, then what else does it mean? Like, how is my life different if I'm yeah. back roasting coffee or packaging coffee? Yep. Um, you know, I don't want to glorify it, right? Because... A job is a job, in a way, and a hard job is a hard job, right? And um, it's it, and some of these are you know difficult uh, situations or whatever. But what I'm referring to there just happens to be front of mind now that the warehouse and the production area has been hot because it's been a heat wave in Boston, and you know swear, but it's like wow, that's what what do you do about that? But but I think people um, they get a sense that they have a Voice. I mean, we try. We try to build not just legally what's built into the bylaws, the the, the absolute right for everyone to have, you know, a vote, you know, and to, to see the financials. We have open book management to get to, to get trained in these areas, to attend and speak at worker owners meetings, of which is about four or five per year. Um, but almost beyond that, we we try, and I'm sure we fail. More often than than not, to build um, a culture that really values uh, participation um, and respect and input and uh, a say uh, in stuff. So we do try to, you know, listen when people... Have something to say, you know. Um, and sometimes there's, a, you know, a gray zone between. Gosh, is that a governance? Is that a member area, or is that mm, really more into the man uh, under the domain of management? Like most of these areas are really clear and spelled out. And occasionally there's kind of a gray zone. Um, and so I think we just try to, we try to um, build that kind of culture. We try to, you know, encourage people to. Acknowledge mistakes, you know, you know, we encourage failure <laughs> fast as possible, but, but encourage it and, and, and to people to not hide it and run away from it. Cause we really believe it is a, is a, it's a source of great learning when, when you fail. Uh, but it doesn't build a good culture. If you fail and you're ashamed of it, if you think it's, you know, heads are going to roll if you failed on something, cause heads don't tend to roll for failure out here. Right. I mean, we do want to learn stuff. So, so it's, um, it's challenging. It takes. I think it takes effort every single day. It's not a socialist utopia here on earth. You know, it's a worker co-op. It's one of the more successful and ones of scale, I think, in the country. Um, I think for us, it helps having an external mission as well. Like we're not just. It's not just worker-owned. We're making widgets, but so many people are attracted to equal exchange for the for the external mission as well for 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 fighting the good fight on behalf of marginalized peasant farmers right and working with them and learning and going and staying in their in their homes for you know a week at a time people just got back from peru a bunch of staff right we try to enable our own members to go after they've been here two years to go and spend time picking coffee on a slippery steep hillside with bugs or snakes or whatever and mud and and you know discomfort and um and then and then spend, you know, a few nights in the in the homes of farmers to really get a firsthand feel for when they come back, just what the heck we're doing up here and why we're doing it. And um, so all these things are part of, you know, what what Equal Exchange uh, is about,
0: you know, sounds like an incredible experience to be a part of. Uh, you mentioned early on that when you. Uh, vote on uh, certain things through the members that uh, usually goes pretty smoothly because you've worked so hard to get the right people to become members. Can you talk a little bit about how you screen to get those next members into the organization?
1: Yeah, we every hiring committee... Uh, has tends to have generally has three people on it, including um, the person who's going to be that person's supervisor, maybe a second person from that department, and a third person from a completely different department, partly as a learning process and, and partly just for a completely different perspective. Um, everyone is going to get at least, well, the first step is they need to fill out an application. Like you can't just send in a cover letter and a resume. There's an application. It's, it's fairly simple, but it is another step. It's three questions, and if we've done our part right, at least one of the questions is not going to have a very easy answer. <laughs> so pe- people need to take that first step just to get, even get a get a hearing. Generally, if they've done that, they're going to get a phone interview, um, and then of 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 that, uh, we'll you know bring around bring people in for a second interview. Uh, for those who make the cut, and and that it, it feels labor intensive, uh, takes a while. Um, but we 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 are asking, you know, we're at, we're at first kind of learning more about the person, and then the second, if they make it to the in person, it's a little bit more two way. You know, we're asking them clearly much more about them, and uh, and they give them an opportunity to ask much more about us, like how does this really work, things like that. Um, we often have role plays depending on what the job is, uh, that again, sees how people can think on their feet, puts them in, often in, a, you know, they're out of their comfort zones. How does that work? But really, you know, if I could sum it up in a word, it's fit. We're looking for people who, mm-hmm. um, you know, we believe will fit, um, in this organization and want to be here for the right reasons.
0: You know, with, uh, all that investment up front to finding the right people, uh, we know that doesn't always work out the way we, we want. So how do you handle it on the other end in terms of, you know, a tough or humbling decision you've had to make as a leader?
1: Yeah. Those can be the hardest ones where you realize, um, it isn't working. And you know, if it's really obvious, it it tends to be really obvious, but I think more often than not, it's going to be kind of gray zone is the phrase I might invoke and, then, if we're doing our jobs well, uh, which we sometimes do and sometimes don't, um, we're going to pull someone aside and, and really have a heart-to-heart and believe that, you know, if it's not, if this is just not the place for them to be, we're going to say that and we're going to do it with, with, uh, with love and directness, um, you know, and then. You know, we, we have fired people here, not, not many over, over 30 years, very few in fact, but, but it, it's happened. Uh, and then there's been some after these conversations have determined, who determined that, you know, they just, it, it, you're right. It's just, it's a square peg in a round hole. It's, it's not, it's not working for me. So th- those can be really difficult. They can be powerful, but they can obviously be really difficult.
0: That's right. Uh, as you think about uh, all these transitions you've been through, Rob, and, and continuing to run this really successful and growing organization, what's an area that you think you need to personally improve upon?
1: I think we can never, um, and I'll, me personally, you know, I just never have the the personnel side completely nailed to be, you know, as timely and as direct in the nature of, uh, of, um, you know, honest feedback, especially if things aren't working, or to try to anticipate where they might not work, uh, anticipate those faster, and then and then create the conditions where someone could, in fact, turn around and and succeed in being really clear and explicit about that. So there's probably somewhere in that area, maybe maybe the, the perennial, perpetual source of the most learning, you know, for me and. Probably yeah. others as well, but you about me, so, so that's me. Um, yeah, you know, I did just want to say one more thing about um, where we're going in the future. Uh, just to, that that um, I mentioned, I invoked the phrase "citizen consumers" a little while ago, and we really believe. Whereas we've always tried to educate and engage um, people in the United States here to what we're doing, um, we're we're. We have I think we have a sense of new urgency to give deeper meaning there as we see you know tectonic shifts in the in in the market and massive consolidation and what you know threats left and right, and you know what possible secret weapons could we have. And somewhere in there, I think, is engaging people um, in a really deep, meaningful way, and in very large numbers over time. And so we have a thing called the Equal Change Action Forum, right, That where we're trying to, again, really look at people as more than just people who consume, more than people who buy our stuff, but rather who are really into what we do, want to be active in their local communities and find others of similar interest and be supported by us and let them into our co-op. Ultimately, we actually want to find a space, you know, on our board, in our governance structure For consumers in this country and that's kind of a direction of the next 10 years as I look down the pike.
0: Wow, that's really exciting. Uh, Just bringing all the aspects of the community together, internal and external. Um, You know, as you think about all of these transitions that you've been able to make, Rob, and a lot of times I'm talking to people in their life who've been doing the same thing for lots of years and are uh, really not uh, comfortable with change or, or making those transitions. Um, what would you say to someone just starting out in their career or someone in college about uh, the path that you've taken or advice that you would give them?
1: You know, I'd say what someone once said to me, um, you know, at a transition moment, misery loves company. You know, when I was after the United Farm Workers and looking for the next thing and, and um, you know, trying to figure it out, uh, you know, you really just should take a job. Well, obviously, if you're in, if you're in the economic situation where at that moment you need to take a job, you need to take a job. Uh, but you don't have to see it as your, your life for the next 15 years, right? I, I would really encourage people to, to the extent possible, follow their passion. Um, and even if there's a, you know, even if kind of the status quo is, you know, you know, you know, an artist, a musician, of this or that. Um, you know, it'll never work. It'll never pay off. You know, you need to, like, major in, a, in something that will really get you, adjust. you know, I, I, you can't possibly, you know, minimize the, the real-life economics that, you know, most of us have. So you've you, you got to take that into account. But, but don't sell yourself short. Like, don't don't believe you can't do something or you can't possibly find a viable path to make something gainful. Um, it's hard, you know, in some of these social justice areas, right, to find gainful employment that matches your passion. But I, I would encourage people to to take to take risks to the extent that they have that, the means and the and the comfort to,
0: to do that. I think that's great advice. Uh, well, you have certainly done that uh, in your life, and I I can see lots more ahead, Rob. I mean, just uh, tremendous stories and uh, what a difference uh, that you're making. How can uh, people like me uh, get involved or go support you or, or purchase the products, or will, would, will they have your name on it if I go to Whole Foods or Target, or do are they white-labeled yeah. for somebody else?
1: Yeah, no, our, our products all are, are, um, are the name of the organization, of, of the co-op, is the name of the brand. It is Equal Exchange, so you're mm-hmm. going to find coffee, tea, chocolate, cocoa, chocolate chips, things like with our brand uh, in the store. And I think if people go to our website they're gonna learn more including about you know the action forum um so equalexchange dot coop C O O P is our website um and, and and take it from there.
0: Oh yeah we'd uh love to support that. Well let me let me end with uh just these five quick hit questions like the association game. Maybe just tell me what comes to your mind and then I want to share some of my learnings with you. But uh Rob name a, a leader that you look up to.
1: Um, I would say Martin Luther King.
0: Ah, Great one. How about a book that influenced your leadership style?
1: It was a Jonathan Kozol book that helped force me out of college. (laughs) The night is dark and I am far from home. (laughs) Long time ago, it, it got me to leave college and actually make this choice.
0: Wow, yeah, and so many of us, if we're honest about it, have uh, our lives have been changed from a book maybe that we read uh, certainly in your case. What about an all-time favorite movie? All-time
1: favorite movie Wow uh, I, can't, I, I can't say all-time favorite I just, but at the moment I'll just go. I just saw the biography, the documentary of Dolores Huerta who most people haven't heard of as the co-founder with the United Farmer because they've heard of Chavez but not
0: Dolores. Yeah,
1: She was such a feisty leader. Um, I'm, for the moment, I'm just going to go with that and recommend people see it.
0: Okay, so, that's a good one. Um, now, I don't know how much time you have, but do you have a favorite TV series you like to binge watch?
1: You know, I actually don't. I actually really don't watch TV, I'm realizing, less and less. The occasional sporting event and the occasional news and I, I actually do don't. I'm not on Netflix. Don't have any of that stuff. I'm kind of an outlier there, I think. Yeah,
0: good Good for you. <laughs> uh, and lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know?
1: Uh, they probably don't know that I was once very, very quiet and very painfully shy.
0: Yes, I doubt that people know that. Uh, uh, you've come a long way, Rob. That's uh, wonderful. Let me let me share a couple of things that that I heard and uh, really meant something to me, and I'm sure to our listeners as well. Uh, and a lot of it really has to do with the courage that you've had to make change. Uh, you know, the the fact that you were uh, got very early on in your life, uh, part of it growing up in, in, uh, you know, the San Francisco or the Bay area, you were exposed to a lot of things that, uh, you got exposed to United Farm Workers by just passing that picket line where they're picketing gallo. And, uh, and then at some point sort of just being attracted to it, um, learning about it and becoming passionate about it. And that, that really, um, has lasted all through now, where you've said as your advice to young people that uh, if you can believe in something, uh, follow that passion. If you have the opportunity to do that, regardless of you know the economic uh, challenges to to doing that over time. Um, it's okay to be forced out of your comfort zone, right? You talked about being shy and that people wouldn't even know that you were you were that guy. Um, but you you listened and you learned from others who taught you that it was okay um, to speak out, and uh, and that really became part of of who you are. That you you made that these couple major transitions and. Uh, I, I think there's so much pressure that young people put on themselves to know what they want to do and when they want to do it. And if they don't have it in their mind, they're already stressed out about it. And, and I uh, was just talking to my 16-year-old daughter about it the other day to just say, honey, you um, don't worry. It's going to change so many times between now and uh, when you even decide where you want to college, go to college or what you want to do. And uh, just be open to these opportunities and no matter what you do, just kind of do your best. Uh, but your transition to, to say, hey, college wasn't for me. I'm just, I'm drawn to this cause and I'm going to follow that cause. And um, and that also you're, you're able to come into an existing organization uh, equal exchange that had been around for a while with three original founders and 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 go into that original organization to to that company. Um, become a part of it, earn people's trust and respect. Uh, again, the question of partners, can, we, can partners get along, can partners grow together? Well, you've been able to do that uh, with one of the three partners very successfully. And so, yes, there's challenges in any kind of partnership, but like you said, with good collaboration and respect, you've been able to continue to work well together. Um, I love the business model of the co-op, but that the co-op is really about the, the mission that employees, uh, not just theoretically, but actually tactically, have a voice in in what they do, um, and they understand that there's a purpose higher than the business themselves. Uh, I love that you encourage failure. Just do it quickly, like you said. Um, focus on hiring the right people. You know, we say that so much, but. Uh, Many of us don't really take that advice because we have that open seat. We, we need to fill it. And you're willing to go the extra mile to invest the time resources to try to right find the right fit in the organization. Uh, and then make sure that when we do find out that we've made a mistake, that we move on that. And even being vulnerable to say that that's something we're always working on is the personnel side. Uh, uh, we never quite get that right, but we're, we're always uh, working on it. And, um, and I think just the the advice that you gave to to young people about um, following your passion, and, and I would say to add to that is just to find your passion, right? I mean, we, many of us don't find it for many years, and that's okay. Uh, if you put your head down, you work hard, you have good values, it's going to come to you. Who knew that you'd be walking by that picket line every day and, and uh, at some point, take on that cause uh, that has taken you all over the world and and now look at the impact that you're having, not uh, only on the economy, but these small farmers and purveyors all over the world. Um, and uh, you're able to touch so many people in that way. So uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me, Rob, and uh, joining me on this podcast. I know everybody else is going to uh, agree with me that you've got a, a wonderful story that's going to continue for years to come.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. I really, really have enjoyed enjoyed doing this for the last 50 minutes. It's been a pleasure.
0: And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.